verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Well, good afternoon and welcome. Uh, my name is Jeremy. Uh, if I don't know you, I'm one of the leaders here at church. And um, it's really good to be digging into the third week of this part of um, the book of Corinthians, where Paul, the writer of this letter, is engaging with issues around marriage, sex, uh, and singleness. And, um, and this, like the other two weeks, uh, engages with some pretty real stuff. Um, but as, as, just going back a little bit on what um, Jacob was saying about the upcoming series, I'd really encourage you to be there. We won't be recording them, so you need to be there live for it. And the truth is, when you convince yourself you're going to listen to it later, it's like the lectures at uni, it's not going to happen. You need to be there for it live. Um, but it's important stuff to know how to engage with it like, intelligently, boldly, um, but also with some understanding. And so uh, we're going to be digging into all kinds of things over those four weeks so, uh, so be here as that kicks off next week. Uh, but this week, as we get um, further into the topic of marriage and singleness, as Paul is kind of looking at this week, we see that the gospel speaks into the culture and the cultural expectations that are set up around these two things, and it transforms completely how we understand them. It is the case that every culture has its kind of what you call scripts. And scripts are kind of unspoken, unwritten ways of doing things that nobody ever sits you down and tells you this is how it gets done, but everybody knows how it gets done. This became painfully obvious on Friday night when I was at the Swans game. I'm not, I, you know, full confession, I'm not really a Swans fan. It was a friend's, you know, ticket who I was there. Typical Sydney fan, really, just dipping in once every 10 years for a game. <laughs> but, um, but what a game it was. And we're in the members' stand, boo. But anyway... Um, they're the only ones who can be trusted with full-strength beer out of the whole stadium, so whatever. But, um, but as, uh, during this game, as I went to the bathroom, I noticed there is a strong sort of cultural script around how bathroom etiquette goes, and particularly around one item, which is the trough. At the trough, there's an unspoken rule that men will stand as far apart as possible whilst, you know, still actually being at the trough. And at this particular one, the set number was four. It fit four men with enough man space around them for everything to be okay and everything's outside of peripheral vision. And so there's four at the trough. And so the etiquette is one guy leaves, the next guy on the line joins up. And so I, you know, kept on with that. The guy left, I stepped up. But then 
the guy after me breaks the mode. He, ju- he jumps in number five into the row. And I'm like, look, there's enough room to... Be- it's getting a little bit tight, but there's enough room for that. Then a guy jumps in as number six. And our arms are touching. I'm like, the only thing worse he could have done would be to make eye contact and be like, hey, I'm, I'm Dave. Like, what are you up to or something? It's like, don't you understand the script? There are rules about these things. You don't have to talk about it. Everybody knows. You don't, you don't touch arms, right? But there are other ones that are, kind of, that are similar, right? When you get into a lift or an elevator, the script is you don't talk to them, even though you're right next to each other, and it's obvious that there are people in the room. You don't look at them, except for maybe a... And then, and then everybody just looks at the door silently as you go up, or you pretend you're looking at something on your phone. And for some reason, that's just how we do lifts in our culture. It's a set script. Now, some of the cultural scripts are kind of inane like that, and kind of breaking them may result in some embarrassment or shame or whatever it is, and they're not that significant. But other ones are bigger. And there is a cultural script about how you're supposed to do relationships in Sydney, Australia. And the general kind of script is this, that through high school, you have a bunch of relationships. You should really lose your virginity at some point in there. Then you get to uni, you travel, you work, you do all that sort of stuff in your early 20s, maybe a bunch of relationships. From 25 to 30, you should probably lock down some kind of a job, maybe a property towards the end of that number. And then for some reason at 30, why 30? We love base 10 numbers, whatever it is. But once you cross over 30, you're supposed to transition into settling down relationships, marriage, kids zone. And no one ever says that. There's no subject at school that says this is the script that you're supposed to follow. But that's how it seems to go. And if you're left out of the script, there's almost a bit of a vacuum for you in our culture. It's kind of like if your life doesn't sort of follow that script, then it's kind of like, I don't know what you do. I don't know. Maybe get some cats and a subscription to Netflix or something. It's, it's, not very, it's not very compelling. In fact, singleness in our culture in early on, but especially even past 30, it's almost seen as some kind of a condition that needs to be cured of. And yet, in this section of Scripture, that's not how Paul talks about marriage, and that's not how Paul talks about singleness. He doesn't talk about marriage as some kind of arrival point, that once you've done it, you've finished, you've you've won the race. He doesn't talk about singleness as some kind of condition that people need to be cured of. The Gospel, as with so many things, offers a superior script to our culture. Because it's written by God our Father who made us and who knows us and who designed us. And it's a more compelling script to understand our life and our identity by because it is from God and it's His very word. One where singleness is not some avoidable condition but where we understand our dignity, worth and meaning in light of Christ and what He has done rather than our human relationships. And so I'm going to pray that as we look into this in Corinthians 7, that's exactly what we'd see. Pray with me. Father, we praise You that You are our Heavenly Father that you made us, that you formed us, that you have designed us, and that to live by your word is to find deepest joy and fulfillment in this life, that to know you is where all meaning and significance is found. And so we pray that as we know this, that we would know the depths of the gospel, the blood shed for us, the forgiveness of sin, and the redemption that we have in Jesus, and how this transforms the way we see marriage and singleness and every status of life. And Father, we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, as we've kind of mentioned week to week, Corinthians is a letter to a church in Corinth written by a guy called Paul. Paul was a guy who killed Christians, imprisoned Christians, arrested Christians. He meets Jesus. He gets saved. He goes from killing Christians to being 
threatened with death for being a Christian. He leaves Jerusalem, which was where the gospel first kind of was told. He moves up through Syria and Turkey, planting churches, through Macedonia, still planting churches, all the way down to Greece, to Corinth. He plants a church there, goes back through the other churches, and about a year and a half or so later, he gets a letter saying, hey, everything back in Corinth is going belly up. There are some major issues back in that church. And so this letter, 1 Corinthians, is kind of working through the issues that Paul is aware of happening back in this church in Corinth. And so that's where we get to in 1 Corinthians 7, is that he's addressing another issue that the church has. Last week we saw that in the church, there was a group of people who said, look, Sex is just another bodily appetite. Food for the stomach, stomach for food. Sex is like that. Look, if you're hungry, you have some food. If you're thirsty, you have something to drink. If you feel like some sex, you have sex. It's fine. It's just another bodily urge and function. And Paul said, no, that's not how we view it. It's the union of two souls. It's meant for the covenant of marriage. It's not some light, you know, insignificant thing. But now he's going to correct another false view of sex that goes in the opposite direction. Have a look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 7.1. It says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So this is obviously the letter he's received, and there's a bunch of, there's a kind of a, a checklist of issues that he's working through. And he's quoting them. This isn't him. He says, uh, concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give, her, uh, give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul's working through this list of concerns that are sent to him. He's already dealt with the group who are like, the gospel means that we're free, we can do whatever we want, sex is just an appetite, so, you know, whatever. And he said, no, that's a, that's a misunderstanding of the gospel. But there's another group who are probably listening to that thinking, yeah, get them, Paul, that's right. And they're saying, actually, sex in total is bad. It's dirty, it's gross, you should never be a part of it. It's a, it's a moral compromise to engage in sexuality ever. And Paul says to them, no, as well. It reminds me of, I remember when I was in high school, a friend called Nathan, and for some reason in the 90s, if you wanted your kid to go to juvie, you named him Nathan. I don't know, everyone knew a naughty Nathan in the 90s, I don't know why. But Nathan, um, Nathan was a loose individual, and we were playing basketball one time, and there were two guys who, someone had pushed someone or something, and so a bit of a, you know, there was a bit of argy-bargy, and, um, and they were pushing each other, and they, no one was kind of, they were annoyed at each other, but no one was annoyed enough to throw a punch. And so it was stuck in an infinite loop of pushes. And then everyone's just pushing, hoping the other one's going to you know, kick it off and then it'll get going. And Nathan had had enough. And so he decided, look, it's not good for my friends to be fighting. I need to sort this out. So he stepped in. But most people, when they step in, calm the fight down. Nathan stepped in. Whack for you. Whack for you. It's all finished. Let's get back to it. And that was it. In a, in a way, he was a problem-solving genius. But uh, it reminds me of what's happening here. There are two groups fighting each other in this church, and they're both like, you guys are idiots. Sex is not just an appetite. It's actually dirty. The others are going back the other way. And Paul says, you're both wrong. You've both misunderstood what sexuality is according to the gospel. Here, he says sex is good. God made it for this covenant of marriage. He made two biological halves to humanity. And when they unite in sexual union in the covenant of marriage, it's good. 
And that's what God uses to produce new life made in His image that lives forever. That's what God has designed. And Paul says these desires are good. And so he says, um, the husband is to give her wa- his wife her conjugal rights, that is to let her have sex, and likewise the wife to the husband. He's saying it's actually good for this marriage covenant to be engaged sexually. It's a good gift from God. And then he goes on to say something pretty countercultural for the time. He says, for the wife doesn't have authority over her body, her husband does. Now for that culture, they would have been like, tick, yep, that's fine. But then he says, the husband also doesn't have authority over his body, the wife does. What does he mean? He's not saying they get to decide what the other person does with their body. What he's saying is when you give yourself over in the covenant of marriage, you're sexually committed to that one person to where you don't have the right to go and take your body elsewhere. Because it doesn't belong to you now, it's theirs. You don't get to decide who your sexual partner is now. You've committed to them and that's it. This was countercultural for them. And he's saying, actually, you belong to one another. This is the good design that God has made for sex. It's meant to bind this marriage covenant together. And you're meant to say, my body is for you and not for anybody else. That's the commitment that they're making. Now, if this sounds dumb and backwards to you, if you're here just investigating who Jesus is or even skeptical, you might be like, look, that's kind of the thing I expected to hear. But I think this view of sexuality speaks into a profound reality in relationships in our culture presently. It's one that's obvious and it pops up all the time. And this is it. When comedians are short on material, what do they go to? They mock the lack of sex in long-term relationships. It's just a running gag. Again, if they're running out of material, it's the easiest stuff to go to because it seems to be such a common experience. The relationships, when they start out, are super sexually charged, but over time, they just sort of fade out and wear down. And I think it comes from the view of sex that is prevalent in our culture that we saw last week, that sex is just an appetite. That is, if I feel like it, I should do it. If I I have a strong urge to, to do something, what I should do with that is to actually fulfill that urge. But what happens then is over the long term, when those urges are kind of smothered by just familiarity or the trickiness of life and kids and everything that comes with it, and the urges, the immediate instinctive urge to be with one another starts to diminish then people are just like, oh, well, I guess it's over then. I guess we kind of just lost the spark. But Paul is saying, no, 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 that's not how you you ought to understand sex. See, that view of sex is the reason why when couples get together, they can't keep their hands off each other, and 10 or 15 years down the track, they can't compel themselves to put their hands on each other. Because if the thought is sex is just an appetite, and if I feel like it, I do it, then when I don't feel like it, I don't. But Paul says, no, you're committed to each other. This is a covenant relationship. You, your body belongs to the other person, so you want to love and serve them. And he says sex is good for your relationship and going forward. And this means a couple of things if you're here and a follower of Jesus. If you're, in a, if you're in a dating relationship, for one, it means that you shouldn't date for a long period of time. Paul is saying these are strong urges because they're made by God and they're good. And if you're trying to hold them at odds to one another over a long period of time, you're going to be working against God's design. Dating over a long, long stretch of time, I would say, does not take 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 5 very seriously. That really, God has created these strong urges and they're good and their right expression is in marriage. And the longer you try and pull them apart whilst trying to draw together as a couple, you're going to struggle. But the second one is that the attitude that you have to sex now is the one that you'll take into your marriage. 
And so if your belief is that it's for the covenant of marriage, that it's renewed by the covenant of marriage, then that's the attitude that you'll take in. And right now, as we looked at last week, that means fleeing from sexual immorality. And in marriage, that means engaging in sexual love. But if you are married, the words you hear is that sex is good. That it should be a part of your relationship. And that if it's a struggle or if it's a cause of bitterness, as it is for many couples over a long period of time, that that's not something that you let go. That as a couple, you want to open the scriptures together and say, are there things we need to repent of or talk through or work through in our sex life? Because here, Paul is saying, don't deny one another your conjugal right. Sex is meant to be a good gift by God for this binding together of two people. And so use it rightly in the way that he's designed. But after dealing with this initial bit on sex and marriage... He goes into a tricky section. In 1 Corinthians 7, 6, he says this. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married... I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul says, on singleness, he says, as a concession, not a command. He says, I kind of wish you were all like I am. And Paul himself is single. And he goes on to say, look, if if you're unmarried, it's good to stay that way. But if not, it's not a sin to marry. And at that point, you think, gosh, it's, it sounds a little bit like Paul is like just a, like a bitter high schooler who's been friend-zoned too many times. And so now he's like, no, like I'm, I'm cool with being single. Like it's, it's actually like really the best way to do things. But if you want to get married, like you can go ahead and do that or whatever. Is that, is that really what's going on? Look, some serious commenters, commentators have actually proposed that idea that he's just kind of jaded and this is why he has this view of singleness and marriage. Well, no, he's not. And we'll see a little bit more about how he views singleness further on. But staying here on marriage, he says, Look, God, Jesus commanded that you stay together. When he says there, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, he's he's referring to the Gospels. He's saying specifically in the Gospels, Jesus taught about the topic of marriage and he said, What God has put together, let no man tear apart. If you're married, you stay married. You need to. And you shouldn't separate or divorce. That actually the ideal for marriage is that when you're together, you stay together. And it's important to understand this because of of what he deals with next. See, he's about to deal with a unique situation in the church where people have come to know Jesus, but their husband or wife hasn't, and they don't know what to do about it. The gospel has gone out in Corinth, and it seems like there are couples where the wife has become a Christian or the husband has become a Christian, but their partner is still unconvinced, And they're writing this letter saying, what do we do in this situation? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to stay together? Do we break up? What's to happen? So Paul starts by saying, if you're married, stay married. And then he goes on into this section to say this. Corinthians 7, 12. He says, to the rest, I say, I am not the Lord. It should come up there. Uh, To the rest, I say, or is it the next one? Up to 7, 12. Oh, it should be there. Great. Um, To the rest I say, not I the Lord, but the Lord, um, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The first bit is easy. Paul says, uh, to the rest I say, if you're married to an unbeliever, stay married. If they want to stay with you, and it seems like maybe in this situation that a few don't, that the wife becomes a Christian and the husband says, I'm out of here, or the husband becomes a Christian, the wife says, I'm out of here. But he says, if they want to stay with you, keep that marriage covenant together. But then he says something strange that may have stood out to you. He says, uh, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. For the first few chapters of Corinthians, Paul is so clear that the only way to be right with God is through Jesus. That through the cross, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins, we're brought into new life, he gives us his spirit so we have faith in Christ. It's all through Jesus. It's nothing you do, it's all through Jesus, it's all through Jesus. And then, all of a sudden it seems like, but there is a side entrance, right? That if you just marry a Christian, like, we can get you around the bouncers and you can get into the club, it's fine. <laughs> What's he talking about here? What's this thing about the, the, if you've got a, you know, the wife making the husband holy and the husband making the wife holy? Well, for one, he's not, he's not saying in there that this means that they're saved just because they're married to a Christian. What he's saying, he says in the end, in verse 16, he says, For how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? So he's saying, look, he's not saying they're automatically saved. He says, who knows whether or not they'll be saved? The point he's making is this. Some of the people in the church are wondering, if I'm a Christian and they're not, does our marriage still count? It, would it be sexual immorality for us to, to actually have sex and have kids? And Paul says, no, that, that marriage union is still holy. Right? It, it is still a scene before God as a marriage. That's where he makes that reference to the kids. He says, but as it is, they are holy. And he says, stay together for this purpose. That you don't, I mean, one, you want to love and serve them, but also you don't know if they're going to get saved or not. So continue to serve and to love them in this situation. Paul says that marriage is holy and keep it together. As far as it is up to you, you should keep it together. And then he starts to deal with singleness. In 1 Corinthians 7.32, he says, he says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed, a woman is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit. But the, uh, the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let the married is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Paul starts by saying... So when you get married, 
you add worries and concerns to your life. That's just an obvious fact. That as you add commitments, you add responsibilities, which means your attentions potentially are divided. And Paul seems to observe a pattern in marriage in his day that probably continues really to our day, that this happens. That people go from single to married and they go from undivided devotion to the Lord to kind of half divided. That they go from being on fire for God to being on pilot light. It seems like in this settling down, there's also a settling down of desire to serve and love God as worries and responsibilities stack up. In, um, in, in studying, for one subject at uni many moons ago, we had to study a subject called narrative and media studies or something you know, pretentious like that. And, um, but part of it was um, we had to look at soap operas. And in particular, I had to look at things like the super soaps in the States. And one of the, if you didn't know this, one of the amazing things about a soap opera is it's one of the only narratives where a show will actually move slower than time itself. <laughs> and that's because each character, they keep skipping around to different groups of characters who keep talking about the same event from five different angles, such that a half-hour show might only cover like 10 to 12 minutes of real-time action. That's... You know, that's a miracle to wrap your mind around. But the other, the other thing about soap operas is this. They, they always have like a large cast, and there's only ever a few at center stage at any time. And, um, and the way that they kind of pull characters forward or push them back is usually around relationships. Once someone is in a happy, stable relationship, they're uninteresting, and they move to the back of the script. And the only way to get them involved again is like a house fire or a, an affair or whatever else, whatever else are the typical kind of cliffhangers at the end of a season, right? But you notice it, right? In a, in a soap opera, once they become married or in a stable, happy relationship, they, they move to the back of the script. It's only when the relationship's in peril. Will they get together? Won't they? Are they going to you know, fall apart that they actually become interesting again? And I wonder if part of that is this social script that once you're, once you're married and happy, You've kind of arrived in life. You've sort of finished. There is this story that like the main thing in life is to find a partner and then to settle down. And once you do that, you just tap out. And Paul is kind of saying that here, that in the Christian life, that's what he's observing. That many go from single and they're like, how can I serve God? What, what, what can I be involved in? How can I reach people? And they get married and they're like, I think I'm finished. I finished the race. I did it. You know, the great, the great commission is complete. And he's saying it shouldn't be the case. It should be the case that every Christian has undivided devotion to the law. That's what he was saying here. That marriages should be outward facing. That it shouldn't be this end point, like in our culture, where it's like, I've arrived or I've finished in life, but where we say, our marriage is not meant to be where I find all my fulfillment and satisfaction and then just bunker down until Jesus comes back, but actually that we are to help one another with our gifts and abilities to serve and love the people around us. To have an outward facing marriage. To be, to be the kind of marriage where you involve other people in your life. Where people who are single are not suddenly cut out of your life, but you continue to involve a whole bunch of people in your life because you want to love and serve them. This is how he's saying the gospel transforms the way that we view marriage and singleness and dating and everything in between. But then he looks at singleness, and having already said that it's a gift, he says to them, I wish that you were as I. That it's actually good, it's a gift to be single for the sake of the kingdom. And this is countercultural. I mean, it definitely was then, maybe even more so, but it's countercultural now, isn't it? There are two ways, I think, in which this is countercultural. And the first is this the singleness is sometimes seen 
as a kind of leprosy, a modern leprosy. It's something that, that if you would, you'd be cured of. And oftentimes, it's spoken about in, in more subtle ways. You might have heard phrases like this that drive me crazy. Like say it's a, a married person or someone who's in a relationship and they're talking to someone who's single and they say to them, um, because you know, they personally like them, they'll say, either one, I can't believe that you're single. That's so helpful for start. <laughs> um, but then also, and it's meant to be kind of a compliment, but then also they say something like, um, something along the lines of, um, you know, like, uh, God, is, God is faithful and at the right time he'll provide the right person. And you're like, yeah, thank you. Thank you. You know what that is? That's saying something that's true and then just saying anything. It's like saying, it's like saying the sun is 90 million miles away and one day you'll be a gypsy shaman. They're not connected in any way. Because Paul here, I mean, Jesus himself was single. Paul is single He's saying, God hasn't promised you that you're going to get married mostly because he doesn't believe that that's the pinnacle of humanity. Singleness is not pre-marriage. God's timing is perfect, that's true, and that's biblical. But he hasn't promised that everyone will get married. He hasn't promised that that's definitely the case. And it's largely viewed in our culture that if you are, that you are somehow missing out or your life is somehow on hold until that happens that you don't fit the cultural script, and so you've got to have some kind of workaround solution. And that's largely because our culture believes that, that finding a relationship is where fulfillment and happiness and security will be found, and it's simply not true. That's not what the gospel says, and observably, that's not true. But it's led to this belief, then, that, that, that uh, singleness is something that we need to be cured of. And one of the things that that leads to is a second view that I think this passage corrects. And that's the idea that singleness then is about freedom. And this, this kind of roughly goes, uh, this is a, a way of dealing with singleness. And the idea is to embrace it, to live up the single life. For a guy, that means, yeah, the boys, and you can be around them all the time. <laughs> and for a girl, that means all kinds of freedoms. You can get stuck into your career, into your jobs, whatever it is. But I think sometimes Christians can buy into this. And the idea is roughly this. God has dealt me a bad hand. God has ripped me off. God hasn't given me the good things that he's given to other people. So I compensate that by doubling down on selfishness. I'll be more about myself. I'll double down on my individualism and freedoms as much as possible. And Paul says, nah, that's not what singleness is for. It's for devotion to the Lord. So you are freed up to love and to serve people. So you have an opportunity to really, to really lay your life down for the Lord. And that's where real joy is found. See, it is the case, unfortunately, that, that in many cultures, and even in church cultures, singleness is just seen as pre-marriage. And, and even sometimes subtly in saying things like, you know, um, working on contentment now is really good because then, one, you're more likely to get a partner because you won't be so needy and desperate. Um, <laughs> But also, it'll make your marriage better. And again, that's saying that godliness right now, the only reward for it is marriage. That actually just living for Jesus isn't really enough. He knows that you need something else. And so if you feel really good now, he might give you uh, that thing as a reward. That's not the case. Your life is not on hold. Paul's life was not on hold. He spent it heading around, telling people the gospel, seeing as many people saved as he could before he died. 
reminds me of, of the story of the testimony of Gladys Alwood, who was a missionary to China in the early 20th century. She was, she was from humble beginnings, uh, a British woman, a Cockney, um, not well educated. She was small. She was four foot ten, so proper small. And she, when she wanted to go on mission to China, she applied to a mission agency and was rejected on the basis that really she probably didn't have the education that she needed to learn the language and to become fluent in it. So she decided that was God saying no to her. But she couldn't get China off her mind, and so she continued to pray and think through it. And reading through the book of Nehemiah, she became convinced that she needed to go to China to serve God and to make disciples. She took the toughest way there. She went by train, which meant going through Russia and ducking in and out of war zones on the way to finally arrive there. But when she got to Shenzhen, she then moved to Yangchen, where she spent most of her life. Now, the first job that she took in Yangchen was incredibly humble. The only work that she could find was to look after the mules at a local inn. But the way she conducted herself and the way she continued to learn the language and to tell people about Jesus gave her such respect in the locals' eyes that the local governor, the Mandarin, actually saw her and respected her and appointed her in charge of of one of the key responsibilities in the area. In China, at that time, foot binding was illegal. Um, but the, the practice was basically, in order to make women more petite or appealing to men, they would bind their feet so that they would have small feet. Incredibly painful, incredibly debilitating. And it was illegal from the early 20th century, but there was, it was very difficult to enforce across rural China. So the Mandarin put her in charge of visiting each of the houses and making sure that their daughter's feet weren't bound. And she told him straight up that she would use the opportunity to preach the gospel in every household. And he said to her, your teaching is good because if a woman becomes a Christian, she no longer binds her feet. The Christian women had the reputation of rejecting that cultural practice. And so he entrusted her with that. Not only that, but she had such a a stature in his mind that when a riot broke out in the local prison, rather than sending grown men in, he sent her in. Four foot ten, cockney woman. And this this is from the bio. It says... She began to order hardened criminals around like school children. She went into a prison like, stop shanking him. Put your face against the wall. Nathan, get out, you know. But she had, she had such a presence and a confidence in the will of God that she walked into a prison and did that. And she, she had a reputation for it. She was proposed to, and they agreed that after the war that was going on at the time, that they would marry afterwards. Oh, but they were separated and never to reunite, and so she remained single. But she adopted orphans who were being rejected and likely to be sold into prostitution, and at one point during the war, had a hundred orphans under her care. They'd come from a nearby mission orphanage and were brought to her. Knowing that Yangshen would probably fall, she decided to take them to the safer province of Xi'an, and this was several days' journey with a bunch of kids who didn't even have, you know, foot coverings or anything like that. There were older kids helping out the younger kids to get there. While she was there, while she was on the way, she contracted typhus, and so her life was on the line. When they got to Xi'an, they were told that the city was full and they couldn't take any more refugees and had to continue another week's journey on. She did all of that to save 100 refugees. And she would say that the motivation was the gospel. And when she understood who Christ was and what he was calling her to, that this was how she was to live her life in response. 
And this is what Paul is saying happens. I mean, look, not all of us are as tough as Gladys, right? None of us are going to go into prisons and start ordering people around. But the truth is the gospel transforms the way you view singleness, not as to some kind of disease or something to be cured of, but to say this is a gift to serve and love others. The cultural script is, if you're single past 30, I don't know, like hit the beers, uh, get some cats, I don't know what, right? It's not a very compelling script. And in the gospel, Paul says, you have everything you need in Christ. So go and love and serve like Christ has loved and served you. Singleness is not pre-marriage. It's a gift, he says, for the service of others and the glory of God and your joy in Him. So let's pray that it would be exactly that. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are a God who gives good gifts, that you are the one who has designed us and has designed relationships for your glory. And we just pray that we would live our lives knowing that you are the one who has made us and that you are the one who should determine our steps. We pray that as we understand the gospel and the love of Christ, that it would transform us to be a people who are willing to lay down our lives for your glory, that we would know that all joy is found in you, that there is nothing lacking in us if we have Christ. And Father, we pray that you would do this in such a way that it would be obvious in our lives, that we'd repent of selfishness and self-concern, and that you would lead us to be a people who pour out our lives for the good of others. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.